Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome to Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. I am your host, as usual, and today we have two guests, both of whom have already been here on TPNR. Dr. Amy Laura Hall is Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at Duke Divinity School. Having her earned her MDiv and PhD from Yale, Dr. Tommy Givens is Associate Professor of New Testament Studies at Fuller Theological Seminary with his PhD in Theological Ethics and New Testament from Duke. So Amy, Laura, and Tommy know each other from Duke, as well as from ongoing involvement in the Society for Christian Ethics, as well as other endeavors and just being really cool people. <laughs> so, and it takes, you know, uh, candidly, it takes more than just cool people to help us grapple with today's subject. It takes a sense of empathy, humility, patience, wisdom, love, among other virtues. Amy, Laura, do you have that poem pulled up? I thought that might be a good way to, to get us started. I do. I do have a poem pulled up. So just as a very quick introduction to why this poem might be helpful, I just recently had a friend who is not Christian ask me if I thought that human beings are basically more cooperative or basically more competitive. Like what is most basic within human beings? And it's not the kind of question I usually ask or answer. I'm more, much more particular in what questions I ask. But my, my answer ultimately was that I do hope that people are more fundamentally cooperative and kind to one another than cruel and exploitative. That's my hope. And this, this is a, a little poem by a poet named Vassar Miller. And I was reminded of her recently because Larry McMurtry, a, a, an author from from not, not far from where I, I was born in Texas, Larry McMurtry died and I was reading about Larry McMurtry and writing about him. And he evidently loved Vassar Miller, this uh, Tex also Texan poet. And this is uh, Vassar Miller's poem, Delayed Gratitude. And I'll just go ahead and, and read it. It's from her collection, If I Had Wheels for Love. Become the friends of small things. I take crickets and gnats for topic. Even the ant arched by my dog's armpit for whom I will write an epic and thereby give him a voice which none ever did for the ant. Even the Lord who made vocal cords, creation somewhat aslant but he shall surely speak through my verses. You can like it or lump it. 
The ant no child hears with ears still magic. My poem shall prove his trumpet, for he earns it, he and every other animated caprice. To me, even their limited warfare being a gesture of peace. So as an animated caprice, praying for continued gestures of peace and trying to find the miracles of peace in the midst of a world that um, doesn't always, doesn't often give us evidence yeah. of such peace. Thank you. That's, uh, that's helpful. Um, I'm going to read a couple of passages, uh, one one each from two different writers, thinkers, theologians, which introduces just one ingredient of a really gnarly subject, makes it even more gnarly in, in a way. Um, the first one, the work of God is the calling of a people, whether in the old covenant or the new. The church is then not simply the bearer of the message of reconciliation in the way a newspaper or a telephone company can bear any message with which it is entrusted, nor is the church simply the result of a message as an alumni association is the product of a school or the crowd of, in the theater is the product of the reputation of the film, that men and women are called together to a new social wholeness is itself the work of God which gives meaning to history from which both personal conversion, whereby individuals are called into this meaning, and missionary instrumentalities are derived. That's the first passage. The second passage. It has been the beautiful teaching of the word of God across time that has given this nation its ethos. It was this word of God that put a song into the hearts of slaves during their darkest days. It was this word of God that gave William Wilberforce in England the conviction and the courage to speak out against slavery and sustained him in the long struggle to see it abolished in the British Commonwealth. It was the same word of God that inspired Martin Luther King in his pursuit of civil liberty. It was from the ser sermon Jesus preached, recorded in this word of God as the Sermon on the Mount that Mahatma Gandhi often quoted. And the same word of God has transformed the life of many a prisoner and of many others I could tell of from some of the darkest parts of the world where the light of God's word has shone. Read the word of God without prejudice and find in there the treasure that God has given to all of us. The first passage was taken from a collection of essays in the Royal Priesthood, uh, a collection from uh, written by John Howard Yoder. The second passage was written by Ravi Zacharias in his book, Why Jesus. Um, you may have heard me mention uh, Ravi, someone I think of as a friend and mentor who had a great deal of influence as a Christian apologist. Um, and after Ravi's death last year, we learned horrifying details of his serial sexual abuse of women who worked at spas that he owned in the Atlanta area, as well as prior allegations that were brought to light. Uh, and then uh, John Howard Yoder, uh, whose theological work was very influential on my thinking. Uh, over the last decade or so, we've learned more and more about his abuse and harassment of women over many years. And these are just two of many examples of individuals that we might view as our heroes and mentors that dreadfully fail. 
whose failings leave many victims. Uh, and it leaves me with uh, just so many questions uh, that arise from this difficult topic. What are we to do? How do we acknowledge these failings? How do we care for the victims? What about our theological foundations? I know in my case, some of my most core convictions are one that started as epiphanies inspired by the work of these men. What does their life and what does their sin say about that theology? And that's just a start. Um, I've, I feel like I've already gone too long. So I'd like to just turn it over to you, Amy, Laura, and Tommy. Um, maybe just some opening thoughts from you both. Take it any direction you'd like. Tommy, do you want to go first or would you like for me to try? I'm happy for you to go first, Amy, Laura. Okay, so my very first thought, Corey, when you asked if we could visit about this, the, my very first thought is that we shouldn't have heroes. I think that's what I may have written back to you in the email, I don't remember, but but the, the one, that was my very first thought, was that having, having heroes in the faith is very dangerous. And in the quote that you gave from Ravi Zacharias, am I saying his last name correctly? Yeah. Um, it, I, I, I noted that he, he names heroic figures. Now he names a group of people, people who were living under slavery, but he names heroes. And I remember I, I sent y'all a link to this piece I wrote about Moral Mondays. I remember when I was young, younger, I guess in my 20s maybe, and I saw the video for Living Colors Cult of Personality. I remember when I first saw that video, I was so confused. I could, I was like, why would you have a why would you have these? men grouped together in the images. It was so strange to me that Gandhi and Stalin, Hitler, I mean, it, it was such a confusing combination of images. And I remember thinking, what are they, why would they do that? And then I thought it's a cult, they're, they're describing a cult of personality. And I think that the lyrics to that, to that song are, as as helpful a Christian admonition as or as close to a Christian warning about what can go very wrong when you combine a sense of holiness, a sense of mission, a sense of of timeliness in history, and one man. It's usually one man. Um, so I, I think that that combination is is very dangerous. Yeah, I took a couple of quotes, uh, and it's there's such nuance in in a lot of your writing. Uh, but let me just share a little bit uh, in the 2011 article that you shared with us. You say the most salient virtue required for church ministry is the uncelebrated yet uncommon virtue called patience. Many pastors 10 years out will tell you that the blessed holy work of ministry is repetitive and slow and not even remotely like the big screen adventures mass marketed to this generation. Um, then in the 2016 essay, uh, you say heroism requires a version of the word hero that involves the daily work of caring for real bodies. 
Jesus recommended washing feet for practice. So our idea of heroes is problematic to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think it's particular to Christian culture. It's, it's of course it's not, it's not particular to Christian culture. I'm not sure it's particular to Western culture. I, I can't speak to other, to other cultures outside of Western Christianity, but I, I don't, I, I think the, the dangers are, they're not particularly Christian. It's just the combination of a sense of, of providential anointing it is it, that combined with with a charismatic personality is very dangerous tommy yeah so i i really resonate with what amy laura said about heroes as itself a kind of dangerous and and problematic phenomenon and uh i guess it's important to me first of all to just name something that I feel like people might be tempted to think about these situations. Uh, and that is that you would be able to separate the quality of someone's ideas, uh, from their character or how they behaved. Um, and I don't think we should cave to that. Obviously I think that people are more than their sins, but I just don't think that we should ever regard people's ideas as innocent of the lives that they lived while thinking them. And how we put those together is complex. And I think part of why we're having this conversation, but I just think it's important not to give in to that temptation to say that we can draw a neat distinction between those two. Uh, I, I guess I, I'm i drawn also uh, listening to Amy Laura to this tendency that is so widespread um, that I'm not sure is entirely avoidable uh, and I, I agree that it's not unique to Western Christian culture, at least in the little that I know of culture beyond that. Uh, but this tendency to uh, be drawn, you know, social movements to iconic figures that act as a kind of um, catalyst for mobilizing people that they, they feed us. I, I feel this in myself. Psychologically, um, something in us feels the need uh, for a figure who brings people together like that somehow represents something that uh, we feel the need for. And uh, I don't know if we can avoid that danger altogether, um, but boy, it is really dangerous for the reasons that Amy Laura was already alluding to. Um, because I think that as that energy begins to develop around a particular figure, um, we become uh, sort of systematically blind, not only to the shortcomings of that figure, but all kinds of associations that are involved. Um, and one thing I guess I do wanna say about Christianity is I feel like one of our problems historically has been a sort of triumphalism. The sense that we have a, a narrative of victory to tell to the world. And it feeds, unfortunately, a kind of martyr complex <laughs> that I think was instrumental, especially in uh, not just Yoder himself, but the sort of culture um, around Yoder that felt like it was a minority culture underrepresented. And finally, someone like Yoder was putting them on the map. And that made it even more difficult for 
the scrutiny that he deserved to be applied to him. Uh, and so Christianity, I think, um, at least as it has developed historically, lends itself to feeding a martyr complex and offering uh, people a sort of story of victory, progress, triumph, that then uh, makes us less than vigilant about the corruptions that are at work uh, in those narratives and the people who somehow seem to embody them. Uh, so that's that's a first thought for me. And I, I guess with... Uh, with both of these figures, I think we would need to pay attention to the particular social conditions that lent themselves to their kind of rise to influence and the insulation that that gave them um, mm -hmm. as their you know, public personas were developed and what they came to represent. And maybe this will come back to this, Corey, but one, this obviously, you know, I think a lot about the Bible, which is not necessarily a good thing. Um, but in, in my case, uh, you know, being in some ways shaped by the culture that produces, um, male heroes, um, of this kind, I am drawn to the way that the Bible insists on, uh, presenting, uh, it's sort of representative figures, uh, in ways that always, it seems highlight their fatal flaws, uh, Moses does not come across, if you read the whole Torah, <laughs> as a hero. Uh, there's plenty to celebrate about his life, but his inadequacies are incorporated in the portrait of him as a person. And I'm thinking of someone like Jesus, uh, who, when his disciples are so eager to acclaim him, the king they've been waiting for, first thing when they do, he tells them, listen, don't tell anybody. I'm the king that you guys think I am. You can tell him maybe after I've died as an abject failure, um, you know, something like that. So anyway, there's, I think some material in the Christian tradition, I'm um, thinking specifically of the Bible, that at least might be a resource for us to combat this tendency to gravitate around heroic figures in a way that hides and even enables their flaws. And in the course of doing that, I think is a way of hiding our own. Mm. Mm. Having, having individual, individual men be like avatars, they, they, they're, they're like a, they're a, a symbol that then we can put our hopes, dreams, aspirations. That is so helpful, Tommy. That is so helpful. Also, I, I was thinking about, I was thinking about, um, the way I heard people speak about Yoder when I first came to Duke, I had read some Yoder when I was at Yale, but, but not much. And when I first came to Duke, it became, it was very clear in 99, 2000, the, the reverence almost that, that yeah, reverence, I think is the right word that people had. And I was thinking in terms of also of having a sense of being under siege of being of being constantly uh, over and against the the larger culture, and so yeah, Yoder was was heroic in that way, and like you said, he had gained a, a hearing in he had gained a hearing among 
some people in power. And I, we're not going to talk about Stanley Hauerwas during this session, I don't think, but, but I think it's something that, that, that Stanley had to reckon with himself as people came to him wanting instructions. I don't know if you've heard me tell this story, Tommy, this is, I'm going kind of on a sideline, but um, this was something that happened to me when, when we built a new building here at Duke Divinity School, where, I mean, I didn't build it, I didn't plan it, but what, what we, the, the, the new big building, we had a room then that would hold 160 people. And it had been that students would have to choose between me or Stanley to take for their intro course. But then we had a room of 160 people. And so it was just one of us and we would alternate, well, sort of alternate, it's a long story, but um, at the, my first time to teach in that room with 160 students, there were, a, there. Um, I remember very clearly, there was a group of men who were sitting together. I've told the story many times, but there was a group of men sitting together who were very angry. They just, they would come into the room and sit and just scowl. And, and at a certain point with this room full of 160 people that I'm teaching, I, I approached this group of young men and I said, y'all are, y'all are really not happy to be in my class. What's going on? And, and one of them said, we came to Duke to study with Stanley Hauerwas to receive our marching orders. And you're not Stanley Hauerwas and you're not even giving us marching orders. And it was so, it was really helpful. I mean, it ended up it was super helpful for me to think about who was being drawn, who was being attracted to Duke Divinity School at that time and, and why? And they, they were not Mennonite. These were not Anabaptist students. These were not, I mean, I don't think they considered themselves pacifist even at the time. Um, they, some of them may now, but that, that sense of wanting to come and have an authoritative male figure give marching orders um, I think I think that's that is strong in American culture. Um, a few other things I wanted to quickly say before I forget them. One is one is as you were talking, I was thinking about about people who who seem to be too big to fail, meaning that if they if they're if they're serious problems come to light, that it will mean collateral. It will mean damage for a whole group of people. I think that is part, we see that in Spotlight so clearly, the movie Spotlight, if, if people who are listening haven't seen that movie, I highly recommend watching it and then going back and reading the documents that the, the movie is based on and thinking about that team of reporters, because part of what they were coming up against was, was leaders who were too big to fail, whose failure, if made public, would destroy the faith of other people. And when that, when you hear that, that someone is too big to fail, or that kind of notion, it's it's a good, it's a good warning to listen for because something's going wrong. If Jean Vanier was too big to fail because his failure would affect all of Larche. What, what, how did that happen? How did it happen that one man um, was too big to fail? So that would be another, another note I would make. And then the last thing I'll say in terms of scripture, in terms of too big to fail, I mean, I, 
I remember when I first read Ruth, um, our Hebrew teacher at Yale had us read through the book of Ruth when we were just beginning to learn Hebrew. And it so struck me in thinking about the placement of the book of Ruth. You're left at the end of the book of Judges with the dismembering of the concubine. I mean, this woman has been dismembered and it's, it's a horrific section of scripture and the ending of the book of judges and then instead of going immediately into into the 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 long story of the people's desire for a king and ultimately a king you have the book of ruth sitting there in between the book of judges and then the you know first and second samuel first and second kings and i i i don't think that's I, I think somebody, a group of somebody's were being very clever in the, that placement of the book of Ruth as an interruption. It's a diff, very different story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very different, it's a very different non-resolution to the, the chaos that the ending of the book of Judges leaves you with when you leave that, that book. I want to pick up on something you both mentioned uh coincidentally david french his most recent essay in the french press he was grappling with the ravi zacharias uh what, what's been happening with the ministry as well as a very prominent christian camp uh in which a, a very uh popular leader uh hero if you will um, it, it came out that he serially abused boys over the course of many years. And David French, um, they did, a, uh, his wife actually did uh, a in-depth investigative piece on exactly how this played out and what's happened since and the church's reaction to it. Um, and, and by the way, for those who don't know, David French is, I think he proudly identifies as a strong Calvinist in his, in his theology. And I know he grew up in a church of Christ, uh, but so he's not, he's not someone, some random journalist from the outside. He is a, is a, is a faithful uh, conservative in his theology, Christian. In his essay on Sun that came out on Sunday, he puts it in the context of uh, Christianity versus Christendom and asks the question whether these leaders, if uh, given the opportunity to actually imitate Jesus, would they? Uh, Because uh, as we've spoken about before, Jesus's path, and and you mentioned it, Tommy, here, Jesus's path to victory was through the cross. It it was an upside-down victory, right? So this camp's um, response was, in fact... You know, just on a personal note, you you once said this to me, Tommy, with regard to I I was leading this ministry, uh, a drama ministry, and I was I was really worried about the if I were not to be leading it, what what would happen to the ministry? You know, I, I guess it was an innocent enough sense of responsibility to the ministry. And, you know, you pointed out, like, it's not about you, man. It's not, you know, and it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world or for the, the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> if, if your drama ministry, uh, you know, just was, was a, a part of history and not a part of the present. 
um, you said it in a much more eloquent way, but I, I realized, oh yeah, that's right. You know, God himself is not dependent on me putting on a, a play <laughs> at the church. But, you know, David French asks that question, uh, the first among you shall be last. The, in order to live, you must die, you know, and, and the leadership of the camp's instinct was to sustain themselves. Well, we, in order to do this great work that we've been doing, we must protect the camp in order to spread the word of, of the gospel, in order to do all of the great ministry work that we're doing, we have to protect the camp and the ministry as a whole. That's, that's the impulse, but it's, it's in contrast with the, the very example that, that you just shared uh, about um, Jesus's response to, to his, his disciples. So I, I'm not nearly as articulate as both of you because you could tell that I'm still working a lot of this out, but that's that's just where my head goes, you know. I think I think Corey, you've given a good example of how the sort of culture that Amy Laura was describing and that I think is still rampant uh, in our world and especially in the church, uh, certain parts of the church, it traffics in this kind of logic of sacrifice where there's some kind of mystique about something that we think we or God has produced, an organization, a camp, the faith, that uh, requires that we make unacceptable sacrifices, that we sacrifice the lives, the voices of people whose bodies have become, you know, uh, a really sick kind of, um, whatever, for, the, for these kinds of figures, predators. And I think we really have to resist that tendency to imagine that there's some project out there that God or we are involved in that would ever justify sacrifices um, like that. And that's one of the difficulties, I would say, even about talking about the cross and the resurrection, is depending on how you tell that story, it's easy to end up feeding right into that sacrifice. You know, yeah, you got to really do some ugly things um, to get to the victory at the end. So there's a lot of kind of poetic subtlety, I would say, to how we tell the gospel story so that it doesn't reinforce the wrong kind of sacrifices and even make Jesus someone that was supposedly, you know, placating God's wrath or something like that, that just had to be done so we could get the good outcome of salvation or something like that. Um, I'm thinking still about Robbie Zacharias. I know that figure is probably a little more familiar to me in my background, maybe than it was to, or than it is to Amy Laura. But I think, you know, the way I encountered Robbie Zacharias as a kind of young uh, white evangelical man um, if I could just analyze my own psychology as I remember it, why I was drawn to him is that I had been shaped to imagine myself as fighting against the world with, with the faith, you know, somehow as a Christian committed to the gospel, I had to defend this fragile thing against the onslaught of worldly attacks, atheism, this kind of thing. And so apologetics offered this kind of weapon right? Where I was going to fight. I was going to be the superhero that was going to fight off the invasion and uh, sort of save myself and everybody else from that threat. And I think that's part of the appeal that Robbie Zacharias had to me and has had to many others is this 
kind of narrative that we have of a fragile and vulnerable Orthodox Christianity that needs to be defended against secularism or whatever it is. And so we gravitate around this figure because we see in him the ability to sort of save ourselves from that threat that we feel like, you know, we've got to face. So I think we've got to analyze exactly how these figures come to be, you know, be this sort of deposit of hope or, you know, uh, what we need to respond to some threat, because I think that has a lot to do with the kind of power that they develop that then makes them not vulnerable to scrutiny. And the food of these kinds of things that Amy Laura was describing where it becomes too big to fail, right? Because at the end of the day, what that would mean for me was if, if Ravi was doing the kind of work that I needed uh, to be able to face a hostile world and to save it, you know, by doing good apologetics, um, then I'm thinking I'm too big to fail, right? I, I want to personalize this just um, and maybe complicate it just a bit more. Um, so Ravi's work was even more close to home for me. Um, as you both know, and, and our audience knows, I grew up in a very observant Jewish home. We went to an Orthodox synagogue. We kept kosher. We are Jews. Um, and when I became a Christian, I knew that I would have um, very, very personal fights. Uh, I don't use that word lightly. Um, in particular with my dad, who I can't wait for you to meet, Amy Mora. <laughs> yeah, you keep saying that. We have to figure out a way to travel. And yes, keep yeah. going. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, so Ravi's work was the primary resource for me uh, in my conversations with my dad, uh, especially in those early years when those conversations were the most contentious. How would, would I answer my dad's uh, objections? His, his filial objections, his emotional objections, his philosophical, theological objections. Um, and uh, my dad subsequently met Ravi. Um, and his work, uh, his writing, um, some of his talks, um, and, you know, honestly, just the power of his presence was part of what I identified as the salve of what brought healed and redeemed a lot of me and my father's relationship. Now, um, learning actually through Sarah, his daughter, who um, I don't know if she's still running the ministry, but she took over the ministry as Ravi got sick and then um, and died last year. Um, learning the hard truths of the, his life um, and about those victims um, and his, his destructive behavior and what that meant for the lives of the people um, that he victimized, you know, I, I don't know what to do with all that. I don't know what to, I don't know, does that render all of that, um, what happened, the, the, the evolution of me and my dad's relationship and our theological convictions that we arrived at together, um, some of which we're still, uh, we still have differences, obviously, but much of which, like I said, the redemption of that relationship, I, I just don't know where, the, the, that's a lot of ingredients 
in, in one in one recipe, and I don't know what to do with all of it. Is it the kind of thing where I have to separate out the cream and the the, the nutrition of some of these good things, or is it kind of like you know, there's this really big, smelly, ugly pile of shit, and no matter how much sugar you put in there, how much nutrition you put in there, it's still a pile of shit. You know, I I just I don't know I don't even know where to begin to think of it. So, oh, Corey, um, if we were in person, we would we would pause for longer. But I, I will, I'm gonna I'm gonna risk saying some things that may not be the right things to say. Okay, um, but keeping in mind what Tommy said about not separating out the person's writing and thought from their their lives and what they did with their lives. I think that's very true. I think that's very true. And it's important. The, the article you sent us that Isaac Villegas wrote about Yoder, I think that work is very, very important. And, and I'll risk saying that, that I, I think, I, I think God can, you, it, I'm not going to say this well, but if, if, if in the midst of having conversations with your father and trying still to be your father's son while also being Christian, if this man's words God used in some way for you to continue to be your father's son as you became Christian, like that, that's not a pile of shit. That's that's real. That matters. And you you can eventually think through why you needed perhaps another paternal, very effectively, rhetorically effective man to provide that kind of, of connection for you with your father. I mean, that's something to think through. I, I think that's something to think through. Why, why was he, why was this other man helpful as a bridge? for you and your father, but that's not shit. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think you throw that completely out as somehow corrupt because this man was horrible in his in his life. I don't think that that means that what happened for you and your father in the midst of your conversion, not yeah, I I don't think that's shit. I, I, I'll tell you my, my own, my own dad, my, oh my gosh, if I had to hear the word Trump one more time, <laughs> I had, I had people, I have people in my life who've had to listen to their family members talk in praiseworthy terms about Trump. For me, it was, if I had to hear my dad complain about Trump one more time, I was going to scream. I just was like, I, I know, yes, dad, I know. I mean, he was just so disgusted with the decor, the lack of decorum. I mean, so many things upset my father about Trump, but but one of the things that my dad said, early, like, is he was just devastated. Um, and when, with the election, he was devastated. He was in Texas, he saw it coming and he was still devastated. But he, he, um, he said something about Balaam and Balaam's ass. So mm. book of numbers. And he said, God, God spoke through Balaam's ass. So maybe, maybe, you know, at some point, something truthful will happen during the next four years and it will be, you know, Balaam's ass. And, um, 
I hope that was okay that I said on the podcast that Christians listen to. I mean, it was a donkey, so but it's it's in the, in the King James version. It's an ass, right? <laughs> so it's, uh, but I I think that yeah. It, so so keeping these two things in in play, that it, I think Tommy's right that we have to think through the the ways of of writing and thinking and speaking that particular it, in it's a in this case men that we're talking about um have ways ways that their their um pathologies are written into their theologies and i think tommy's already named that to some extent in terms of like having having a sense of embattlement that that this man helps you feel like you could be effective in the battle like thinking through that i think you can do that work i think it's crucial to do that work and you can also say that what happened with you and your father in the midst of thinking about this man's words that was a blessing can still be a blessing yeah, I agree. I, and I hear what Amy Laura is saying is, is difficult to figure out the right way to say, because I think we have to be able to tell stories of how God has had mercy on us uh, through terrible people and through people who otherwise did terrible things and how to tell that kind of a story without somehow minimizing the terrors that those people committed is super hard. It's super hard. And in some ways, I think if you're trying to tell that kind of a story at too large of a scale, where there's no kind of like community understanding of the subtleties of what you can and can't quite say, then it's it's more vulnerable to becoming problematic. But I think, Corey, you're right to react by saying, I can't simply dispense with what this person's presence, name, written words contributed to something that I treasure in my life. Uh, I, I really identify with that. Um, and I guess I want to say that I feel like one thing we have to maybe get over is the sense that there's any other kind of a story we could ever tell. Uh, I feel like if we're honest about the the sordid histories that have contributed to all of our lives. <laughs> There's no easy narrative there. There's no, you know, way to kind of clean it up. I feel like there's all kinds of corruption and difficulty that has somehow been at work uh, in our lives, if we're honest about how we've gotten to where we are. And so, you know, I think that's the only kind of truth there is. And then it's a matter of how we can tell those stories of the good things in our life without minimizing or justifying all the shit that's in the middle of it. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I'm sympathetic with your concern. And I just, I feel in myself as I'm trying to say this, what Amy Laura is, I think also expressing, which is it's really hard to name the goods of our life without underplaying some of the terrors that have gone into those goods. Let me ask this question. Amy Laurie, you mentioned the, the essay that Tommy shared or the, the paper that uh, Isaac Samuel Villegas wrote, just published this last January, uh, just this year, uh, called The Ecclesial Ethics of John Howard Yoder's Abuse. And I, I bring it up to say 
to, to ask more specifically about the theology, right at the top, Viegas says, Yoder designed an ecclesiology that was congruent with his pursuit of unaccountable power over the women he used as subjects for working out his exploitative sexuality. His theological contrib- contributions, I argue, cannot be separated from his behavior. So those passages I read at the top that influence the profound effect that it had on my own thinking, what are we to do with that? What I, I can't, you know, I can't help but read, especially, um, you know, some of Yoder's reflections on the Matthew 18 passage. There are some things that even just having read just a bit of his uh, work again over these last couple of weeks, I can't help but not see that through the lens of this guy was trying to justify some ugly stuff, mm. you know, and, and my, my own theological foundations are sort of shaken. Like I have to go back and question, what is it now that I do believe if it was so um, deeply influenced by this, you know, I have to go back and recheck what I think. I think what you're saying in Laura about me and my dad's relationship, there's a sanctity there. There's um, a beauty there. Uh, there's, there's love there that um, I think what I hear you saying is I don't want to sully the truth of that love and the truth of that redeemed relationship uh, because some of what we might have been reading or some of what might have influenced our conversations was connected to this, you know, for lack of a better word, just sinfulness. I don't know. What, what about the theology? What, what do you think about that? So Tommy may need to speak to this more because he knows Yoder's work more. I mean, I, I've taught Yoder. I, I, one of the problems I have in talking about this, and uh, there's so much to, to think about in what we're the intersection of all the things we're talking about right now. Um, but one of the things that is so, so there's a conversation within within Mennonite circles. There's there's that conversation that I think is really important to have. I I'm going to risk saying something that is possibly going to be wrong. We're just going to have to keep doing that, right? I, at least I'm going to have to keep. We're going to have to keep doing that. <laughs> um, it has troubled me the way that some people have. It has troubled me the glee with which some people have followed the story about. Um, John Howard Yoder horribly abusing his power with women and abuse, sexually assaulting women. It has troubled me the glee with which some people have followed that story. And here, okay, I'm gonna. This is this is dangerous, Tommy. You're gonna be able to hear the danger in what I'm saying. I I have I can't help but note that when Richard Hayes, when we had Richard Hayes's big celebration of his, of his work at Duke, the people who planned it had it be all about beauty and scripture. It was all about aesthetics, about the beauty of music, the beauty of words, the beauty of the arts. It's lots about theology and the arts. The beauty of his of Richard Hayes's love of scripture. There was not one word, Tommy. Were you there? There was one word about Richard's witness against war. Not one. Not one word. 
about Richard Hayes's Witness Against War, which has been consistent in his entire authorship. And Richard and I disagree very strongly about some things, but it was really striking because it was like almost two hours long, not a word about war. And and Stanley Hauerwas, I have watched as people have used this horrific set of, of, of the, 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 whole, the whole John Howard Yoder horror, people have used that then to try to discount Stanley Hauerwas's witness against war and to try to discount any Christian witness against war. So I, I, am, I want to, 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 I mean, the danger in what I'm saying is that I'm coming close to saying that the legacy of a theology of passivism matters, and that's dangerous, right? Because it's like, <laughs> but we we the the conversations about an anti-war witness within Christianity, those conversations are dangerous, and people who want to squelch those conversations are using this story to try to discount any pacifist witness today in the United States. And that, that troubles me. Yeah. I think that's fair, Tommy. I, I, sorry to cut you off here, but I remember uh, debates that we were having in our, in our Bible study at Grace, where there was a great deal of pushback, because remember, we were talking about this in 2002, 2003, you know, and there was pushback about um, Yoder's work on those grounds, Amy Laura. Um, and I could see that they had the the trump card, if you will. Well, you know, look, you know, look at him. And, you know, we can't really take this work seriously. Yeah, I'm really glad Amy Laura took the risk uh, to try to say that um, and, and is naming, you know, the ambivalence with which you do because of the liabilities that it might have. But I, I, I find myself uh, nodding in agreement because I think that... So I want to say in a minute, Corey, something more in direct response to your question about where in Yoder's theology or what about his theology, you know, we need to rethink, question, criticize in light of what it enabled or how it correlated to his behavior. But before I get there, just because of what Amy Laura said so well, I think you do see uh, this phenomenon in the wake of these revelations where people are ready to actually reiterate the same kind of politics that we're trying to question, namely that you can expose the faults of someone and make that too easy a basis for dismissing anything associated with them through other people or whatever. And it's a kind of self-righteousness, I guess, that bothers me a little bit um, so that, you know, people find something horrifying that's associated with something that they want to oppose. And they simply play up the horror of that as a way of dismissing what a a truthful witness might've been uh, associated with what's now being presented as horrifying. And so it's, it's this tendency, I think, to be kind of hypocritical or self-righteous to build up our own project. In this case, um, something that wants to continue to enable war on certain grounds by trading in the failures of Christian pacifism or something like that. Um, And so I think we should be on the lookout for that 
tendency that people have to advance their own projects by simply exposing the deep failings of their opponents or the associations of those deep failings. But more, more to your question now, Corey, um, you know, I think that what I like about Isaac's article is his attempt to be somewhat systematic. That is to not think, well, we just have to find this little problem in Yoder's thought here, or he was fine until he made this move there. <laughs> it's not that easy. Um, you know, we have to allow uh, a kind of holistic scrutiny to be applied um, to his work. And a couple things that I would highlight myself that I find to be problematic is a sort of romance about the church that I think comes out of Yoder's work, this tendency to idealize a form of community that supposedly embodies the gospel message, as you were reading from the quotation at the beginning, you know, developing that kind of mythology about the church, I think is recipe for hero cults. So I don't think we should think of the church in the idealized terms that Yoder um, did. And I think that deserves uh, a kind of revisionism across all of what he wrote. The other thing that I guess I would maybe highlight is the tendency of Yoder to think of certain kinds of subordination as revolutionary, you know, uh, associating those two categories, subordination and revolution. I'm not closed to certain people who have endured uh, various kinds of vulnerability in their own flesh, talking about the power of that. But I don't think I'm going to hear that from Yoder. <laughs> um, because the, the desire to make certain kinds of submission to authorities, even corrupt authorities, or subjection, as he might have said, supposedly revolutionary, I think sets up a way of allowing subjection to be reinforced because it's supposedly changing things when in fact it's reinforcing those power dynamics and sacralizing them with a bunch of Christian piety and talk, you know? Uh, so those are two themes of Yoder's work that I think run across all of it that I think ought to be criticized and that we ought to be reworking in our own minds uh, to the extent that we found our thinking shaped by those two tendencies, the romanticization of a certain form of community that Yoder calls church and the pairing of subordination and revolution. Absolutely. Tommy, that was so helpful. Did it, Corey, do you, are you following what, what Tommy's saying? Cause it is the, this, this, Oh, the subordination revolution piece. This is, did you, Tommy, did you know In Young Lee? Did you, were you at Duke when In Young? I think, I don't think so. After, okay, so In Young was, did her PhD in theology. I believe, so I was looking, I was trying to find when she defended her dissertation. I believe it was in like 2012 because she, she, did most of her work and then she she and then she went to go past her churches methodist churches and then she completed her dissertation i need to find where in young is but in young lee's dissert, duke dissertation is probably available through duke library she was she her whole dissertation was on that hmm. on what what is wrong with Yoder's understanding of subordination and revolution. And she was specifically looking at the pastoral epistles. She was looking at subordination and um, 
in First and Second Timothy and Titus, and and thinking through gender dynamics already in in Yoder's work. And um, so, yeah, I, I'd have to look to see. But her last name is Lee, and her first name is N I N dash Yong in W O N G in Yong Lee. And she was working with Stanley on on. Um, she was one of his one of Stanley. Stanley didn't have a whole whole lot of of female students coming to work with him on Yoder. And she is somebody who was, that was what she was wanting to look at in particular was mm. subordinate subordination and revolution and gender dynamics and power in Yoder's writing. Well, I, I immediately thought of secular revolutions, uh, a couple of which uh, I know started with a philosophy, you know, the Bolshevik revolution was a revolution of the people and it transformed into just another um, you know, a czar, czarist Russia 2.0, you know, with Lenin and Stalin, um, or closer to home with Fidel Castro, uh, you know, again, a revolution of the people based on um, philosophical moorings that ended up in another version of a, a dictatorship, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying, I realize, but uh, the what you're saying about the tendencies of the church were certainly not immune to such tendencies. Uh, and I think we need to be uh, cognizant of that and, and humble in the face of that tendency. Yeah. Well, if churches, Corey, if churches are like families, I mean, if, if we're doing it on the microscope, if we think about a church, because that's, that is often the, the, the language that, that we hear in Yoder's writing about, about a small Christian community, but like, Families can be super messed up. Like the the, we, the romanticizing of of a church is like a family. Well, then that's really dangerous because families are made of people, and and the, the the you know power dynamics and hierarchies within a family. I mean, any any great Western literature, including you know Agatha Christie, is specifically about the ways that yeah. families go horribly horribly wrong and. Um, yeah, so the romanticizing about, about community, the, the, the language of community itself can be such a blurring over yeah. of what is really. Boy, I, I feel fun. that so much these days in my life, boy. I feel it with my kids. <laughs> they are so suspicious of Christian rhetoric. Oh, man. And, um, you know, they're, they're teaching me a lot about what I sound like or have sounded like as a father, uh, just there growing up, you know, um, with me. So yeah, I've got all kinds of new suspicions about this rhetoric, some of which I think I absorbed as a younger person um, under the influence of Yoder's writing and others influenced by Yoder. Uh, but I think one of the things, just speaking very specifically to the context of abuse, Yoder was able to reinforce this sense that he and his students were on the cutting edge of embodying an ideal that was going to be, you know, God's gift to the world. And that was, I think, what provided a lot of cover for basically grooming and then seducing uh, students into terrible kinds of interactions with him. And it's similar to what you see in Ravi Zacharias. You see this in Jean Vanier, 
where the people that they victimized, you know, they used a kind of spiritual counseling as the way that they set them up for that. Uh, giving people the impression that they were sort of accessing the real goods that God has revealed through them. Um, man, it's really sick. But I, I just think that um, requires, as Amy Laura was just saying, that we tell a different story, different kinds of story of the church as family. And this is where, once again, I, I think there's some, um, sorry to put some jargon in here. But we got some Marcionism going on here. You know, where we, we talk about church as family in a way that seems to be oblivious to the, the broken nature of family that comes to us from the Tanakh or Old Testament. Um, you know, uh, and I think it's oblivious really to actually a, a more careful look at the New Testament picture, which is so transparent about the failings of Jesus's disciples. And this course, like their ancestors, these are the stories the disciples themselves uh, left about Jesus, the same way that their ancestors left stories about how broken their families were as God's people. And uh, I just think that's so important for us to be telling a story of ourselves that um, basically repeatedly uh, requires that we face how we can, you know, how we need help, how we need help, by the way, from the world, <laughs> right? It's not yes. just the church is here to save the world. Um, the church needs the world to be saved, <laughs> I think. Yeah. That just something, I, I, if you don't mind my saying, Corey, I think Please. it's really important. When, when you named that David French is not coming from the outside, I, 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 that language is something that it, it took me a while to understand because I didn't grow up evangelical. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I know you didn't grow up evangelical either, but I mean, I had to learn once I came to Duke and I had, I had people thinking in that, in that, in from different angles of Christianity. Um, but, but men, I can think of lots of different times that particular groups of Christians have needed the ACLU to keep them accountable, have needed, I mean, the AFL-CIO. It's funny when you ask me about a, a possible um, a charity. I mean, what first came to mind was the ACLU, given what we were going to be talking about, but I thought that might be too politically loaded. So I didn't say it. This is politics and religion. So <laughs> I know, I know, but I mean, I, I think that that's, it's, it's really, it's really noticeable in spotlight. It's one of the key points I think is that, is that the, the senior editor who's giving them the charge to, to do this work through the Boston globe, um, He's Jewish. It, I think, it, I mean, he's, it's, it, it, it's, it's a truth about the actual story. And it's also a truth. I think that we need the groups of Christians need secular authorities, not secular authorities who are going to come gleefully, you know, bashing us over the head you know, for, for believing in Jesus, not that, but keeping us, keeping us according to basic laws of of non-exploitation and and yeah yeah like we need the national organization for women we need the national organization for women to to keep you know muscular christianity in check 
I just said that, but I really believe it. And can I say one more thing? Cause I'm a little bit on a roll. I know, but Corey, uh, something else I want to say is that is that it's super scary to me how utilitarian reformed versions of Christianity are. It's really scares me how, the idea that there are men who are who are destined to be to be catalysts for God's work in the world and that we need in some way to protect them from exposure that suggests that their souls are not what's ultimately of the most importance to God. And that scares me. That version of Christianity really scares me because the idea of of a man as an arrow that God is going to be using and that God isn't most concerned about that man's soul. That's creepy. That's really creepy. And I hear it all the time. It's why I've been writing about muscular Christianity for a decade is as I got to, I heard it so many times. I thought this is so dangerous. This way of thinking about men in power, men in power are, are, they are useful to God. And it's like, that's not how God sees individual men is this their use value. That's a really creepy God. Since the last time we talked, are you any closer to writing that book? Oh, I've been writing. I mean, I've got like all. I've, I've been. I keep writing it. I, I'm. I'm. I. I need a publisher, Corey, and I. I need a. I need leave. I've been teaching an overload. But that's a yeah. whole other conversation. But no, I'm not. I. I have. I. I told you right that I have my. Um, I have a horseshoe right there that a group of men in cowboy ministries gave me. That horseshoe. Every time I walk out of this this little office, that horseshoe reminds me that I've got to finish the book because so many men have have trust, entrusted me with their confessions and their, their they, knowing that I was going to write about them. So I've got to finish that book. But yeah, men be useful. That's like, no, 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 no. That's not why God loves you is because you're going to be useful to God. Ugh. Yeah, no, I, I, I confess that a lot of the um, trappings of that, you know, the, the idea of being a leader and all that, that, uh, brings, you know, the image of, of being the hero. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm culpable. Um, and speaking of culpable, I, I know we're already over, but I, I think that there can be, um, many, many, many more conversations just about the victims, um, and what our own, my own culpability might be, um, how we care for those who've been victimized. Um, you know, that's, I, I just don't want to end this, uh, conversation without at least acknowledging that and saying that's, that's a whole other, not just conversation, but set of conversations and actions and ministry. I, I just don't, hey, Corey, I don't know we, where to begin. We maybe have muted, uh, this a little much with just the way our own conversation has gravitated. But one of the strengths I think of Isaac uh, Villegas's work on this and some others is the way that he prioritizes the testimony of survivors in developing an analysis of what has happened. Yeah. So one way forward, I think, um, in reforming, revising our theology and how we're going to shape the memory of these men is by prioritizing the voices of those that, um, that they attacked and have had the resilience and just really grace to speak about it. 
to even want to speak about it at all. Uh, that's really phenomenal. And so Isaac, I think did a really good job, even in that article that you mentioned earlier, um, you know, he went and did a bunch of research, reading the writings and man, the number of times that there were really smart women telling Yoder exactly what he was doing. Uh, I mean, I couldn't have analyzed it better, right? 20 years afterward and thinking from a safer place than these women that were in the heat of the storm, they could see it and they put words to it. And Isaac, you know, he quotes a lot of them, did some research in the archives out there and Elkhart. Yeah. But that's important going forward, I think, is to not mute those voices or um, think that we've just got to engage directly with these authors. I think we, we need the kind of priestly help in some ways of uh, the voices of, of those who have survived what they've done to tell us how to think about them. Yeah, again, that essay is called The Ecclesial Ethics of John Howard Yoder's Abuse, came out in January of 2021. And it is an absolute treasure trove of other uh, references and resources. To your point, he does amplify the, um, the victims, um, many of the testimonies. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And I know we're already so over, but I don't want to end without uh, Amy Laura, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about United Methodist Women, unitedmethodistwomen.org. Oh. Oh, yeah, right. So, so the UNW, they, um, they, go, they go way back. <laughs> they go way back. But um, I, I thought of them, I thought of them in part because of what we were going to be talking about. And in my experience growing up in Methodist parsonage, you know, I, was, I grew up in Methodist parsonages across Texas, as my dad was a Methodist minister, and the UMW circles were um, circles of, of women who would gather together to, to pray and also to talk. And if you wanted to know what was going wrong in a, in a congregation, the UMW, a UMW circle wasn't a bad place to start because they would actually learn, they would trust one another over time to be honest with one another about problems that were going on in a, in a congregation. So, you know, if you're getting a sense, wanting to get a sense of the family system, UMW is a good place to go. And they're not, they're not, glamorous. They don't have a big fancy, their website, like I said, is probably pretty prosaic. Um, and they're not doing mission work in such a way as to make a name for themselves. So um, yeah, they were who I thought of as good, sturdy, reliable. I'm sure there are lots of mean United Methodist women out there. <laughs> there are some real backbiting ones. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm certain of that too. Um, yet, yeah, they were the sturdy, reliable charity I could think of, especially given what we were going to be talking about related to actual groups of Christian people. Great. UnitedMethodistWomen.org. Dr. Amy Laura Hall, Dr. Tommy Givens, thank you so much for taking the time and for your wisdom, your patience. Um, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Corey, for the conversation. Thanks, Amy Laura. Thank it's so it's so good to see your face, Tommy. I, I yeah, likewise. Zoom, but this is really good to see your face. And yeah. thank you so much for your hospitality and asking us to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. 
give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.